Hi, everyone. We just wanted to issue a trigger warning for this episode. At the end of our show, we'll be discussing suicide. If that is a sensitive topic for you, please feel free to turn off the podcast at about the hour and five minute mark when we start discussing Casper Cole. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Funny, They Don't Look Jewish, where Judaism appears in the panels. Our purpose is to find characters, stories, and issues of comics that explore explicitly Jewish content. I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No No relation. relation. So, Brandon, I'm coming to you from the middle of Pesach. Chag Sameach. I, I just wanted to, I know we might, we're going to be listening to this later, but I wanted to wish you and all of our listeners Chag Sameach and uh, Zissen Pesach, as they say. And I hope your Seders were great. Who knows three? I know three. Last night was the third night of the Omer. Zissen Pesach, Moedim Lasimcha, everybody. We're coming to you from the middle of Passover. And who knows? Hopefully it's still the day of the Omer by the time you're listening to this. But I imagine Passover will be long past us. Yeah. But maybe not, maybe not long past us. And we're supposed to do things a little differently the week of Passover, right? We're supposed to yeah, yeah, not yeah, eat certain things, point. right? So what are we going to do this week to sort of mark that we're doing things a little differently? You know, I'm really glad you asked, Henry, because I had this thought. What if instead of just covering one character in all their Judaism, what if we rounded up all those characters who didn't quite have enough for their own episode and covered as many as we could? Uh, are you talking like a minion of of characters here? Uh, not quite. We're just a little bit short, I think. But I am looking at uh, one for each day of the week. We're talking a gauntlet of seven characters, all of whom are Jewish, some of them ranging from just one panel, others to an entire mini story. But let's just dive in and explore the greatness that is. Uh, by pure coincidence, these are all Marvel characters, but we are going to have a menagerie a ragtag bunch a three shy of a minion's worth of jewish characters today that's great so who are we talking about first brandon we're gonna start off with uh someone who's near and dear to my heart Iceman, one of the original five x-men Iceman or bobby drake has the mutant power to turn his entire body into ice go figure he manipulates temperatures can manipulate cold um, and has been listed as what's described as an omega level mutant in other words uh his power is really sort of uh without limit it just could he's insanely powerful and one thing that's really neat about the comics history is we've seen him uh grow and live up to that potential more and more in recent years but I'm not interested in recent years, Henry. I'm interested in the very beginning. Uh, We're going to acknowledge that uh, Iceman, Bobby Drake, his first appearance was in X-Men number one, September 1963. Love that month. Love what it did to my life. Um, Created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And we're going to jump forward uh, two decades to December of 1984 when dear Bobby Drake received his very first limited solo series. Four issues, all dedicated to the Iceman. In this case, uh, written by J.M. DeMatteis and with art by Alan Cooperberg, or Alan Cooperberg, perhaps. Fun fact, this is the brother of Paul Cooperberg, who we covered in our Colossal Boy episode. Um, We really just have two panels. In this, Iceman has gone to visit his family. He's visiting home. And we have an instance where he's interacting with some relatives. He's talking to some aunts. They squeeze his cheeks. They say things like, oy vey. You get the sense, wait, is there something Jewish going on? And then 
like me at a lot of family gatherings, Bobby finds an excuse to go outside, get some air. He's talking to the cute neighbor next door. Uh, and he explains to her in a panel, my dad's Irish Catholic. My mom's Jewish. I was the only kid in Hebrew school who got off for St. Patrick's Day. That was another joke, by the way. Uh, the woman that he's hitting on, she's not having it. Also, of course, um, Iceman will turn out to be gay, so not too surprised that he wasn't quite having luck here. But at this time, he's in the closet. Uh, and Henry, he reveals that his mom is Jewish. And he goes on to explain, anyway, the Catholic kids used to ride me for being Jewish. The Jewish kids used to ride me for being Catholic. And that wasn't even my big problem. That's it. That's the mention we get. That's about it. As far as I know, nowhere else in the uh, 36 to 37 years since that issue have we seen really acknowledgement of Bobby's Judaism. But his mom is Jewish. She identifies as so. And we have confirmation that he went to Hebrew school. Okay. There's so much to unpack here from just these two panels. All First right. of all, Bobby Drake, like you said, he, he's an original X-Men. He's no slouch. He is iconic. It's great that he makes a dad joke trying to, trying to uh, uh, get together with this girl. And, and then in the next panel, like, I, they weren't playing it for comedy. That is a very serious issue having to deal with being shunned by two different communities. And it's something we've seen before from other people who talk about their experience as maybe being a Jew of color or a Jew and something else, you know, where just both groups completely reject you. And it kind of like goes away then. And like, I can't believe we've never heard anything else again that in many ways, this was just a smaller version of the speech Kitty Pride gave on the X-Plane when she's traveling with those younger mutants. And I think Bobby was on the plane in that issue too, sitting like sitting next to her. So like, it's weird that right. he didn't speak. And about. if you'll recall, his takeaway from it was looking at her and going, you're Jewish, which now all of a sudden at the time we just thought was played for laughs. Now we have to realize one is this same sort of being like, oh my gosh, someone else who also has this identity. Right. And two, a little earlier, I forget exactly which run it was. If it was in Brian Michael Bendis's run or if it was in Jason Aaron's, that speech was there. But I believe in Jason Aaron's run, Iceman and Kitty Pride started dating. Yes. And they were together as a couple and never you would expect that as a couple, the most iconic Jewish X-Men member of all Kitty Pride and Iceman, who turns out his mother's Jewish, you would expect them to have a conversation about that. So I'm now I'm wondering, you know, again, this was back when Bobby was in the closet. It was before Bobby had come out. But is this a young closeted Bobby either being attracted to Kitty? Is it a young Bobby just connecting? Right. Like suddenly there's something much more substantive there. And there's your overall point, which is uh, I just know so many people for whom I feel like this is great representation of, yeah, I grew up really upset because neither group side aspect of my identity wanted to fully claim me. Both tried to say you belong with that other group, get out of here. Right. And I think like to overlook this panel is a real shame. And I don't know if it just never sort of gotten written into the X-Men Bible. You know, I, I'm sure at Marvel, there is some, you know, if you're writing X-Men, you, you, you do your research on the characters. Like, did this just get forgotten? You know, did J.M. DeMatteis forget to fax 
Chris Claremont and say like, by the way, Bobby's Jewish now, because it's strange that it never got mentioned again. And, you know, I mean, you'd think Brian Michael Bendis would have known this. This is a big, big deal that Bobby Drake, Iceman is Jewish. And the fact that we have only one panel of it is a shame. Like, why didn't Kitty or Bobby ever talk about that? It's definitely a missed opportunity. I think I want to say three things, hopefully really quickly. (laughs) Number one, um, definitely it was a thing that even if it was never used in stories, uh, everybody knows it. Bobby is actually constantly brought up in examples when people are saying, what Jewish heroes are there? There would, there's always been lists that sort of say, Oh, by the way, Iceman has, you know, a Jewish mother at the very least, which brings me to my second point. I don't know, even though having a Jewish mother and growing up going to Hebrew school, I'd certainly say he's Jewish. I don't know if Bobby self identifies as Jewish. I get the impression that similar to Sandman who we covered last time, he might say, you know what? My mom's Jewish. My dad's Catholic. I'm neither of those things. That's just not what I am. Um, So again, that's, I know people like that also. So it's great to have that representation. I'm comfortable going as far as saying Bobby has Jewish lineage and jewish parentage and if you wanted to claim the identity i'd 100 percent be for it and i'm not going to force it on him either even though he's right fictional character i can't force it on anyone but you get what i'm saying um the last thing that i just want to bring up that i didn't think about until you popped this idea in my head henry the x-men didn't explode in popularity until chris claremont really took over and and until giant size x-men slightly before claremont um when we had suddenly this international team and part of the reason is that the X-Men and mutants in general turn out to be this metaphor for people who are different, people who are oppressed for one reason or another. We can certainly read lots of Jewish parallels in there. There have been times I think Claremont viewed Xavier and Magneto sort of as like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So there was clearly a racial allegory that was going on. And especially in the past few decades, all sorts of ways in which X-Men has become the allegory for the coming out experience and for uh, the experience of queer allegories. So in a lot of ways, right, X-Men is at its most popular because it is a sort of sci-fi fantasy allegory for a minority experience of being hated just because of their identity. However, The old X-Men of the 60s were never quite as popular. And part of the reason is for an allegory about people who are hated, it's all a bunch of white Protestant good-looking kids, right? Like even Angel, ooh, no, impossibly handsome guy has wings. Who's rich. Right, he's rich. Ooh, darn. Right, like none of the characters, they're about as Protestant-y as Marvel characters get. And so to sort of take one of them, Iceman, and to say, you don't know it, but actually he has a Jewish mom. I don't know. There's something there where it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's adding a little bit more to it. It's adding a little bit more complexity and identity there. It's sort of um, sneaking a bit more of Stan and Jack themselves, maybe even into the characters who clearly have Jewish creators, but on the panels passed for as white bread Protestant American as possible. Right. So I think, you know, I don't want to pull on another thread or go down another rabbit hole here, but to what extent did Lee and Kirby do that thing that a lot of artists and writers did in the 60s, 50s and 60s, which is, you know, like Barry Allen, Hal Jordan, these guys are like, just like purebred white, you know, often blonde, definitely not Jewish characters. 
Um, I know, you know, obviously Ben Grimm was, we talked about at length about Jack creating Ben Grimm and how that was definitely him. But, you know, Reed and Sue and Johnny are certainly, you know, not Jewish at all. So like, is that the same kind of thing in, in X-Men? Yeah, I never got the sense that any of them was a real strong Jewish allegory for either one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so really Chris Claremont really... In many yeah, ways, I mean, he recreated the X-Men for so 100%. much better. 100%. I mean, if nothing else, just think about, I don't know, I'd have to go in and learn what the histories of things are. But, I mean, what Xavier runs, the the whole premise, as far as the public is concerned, is that this is a, um, a private school for the gifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't 100% know, but I'd imagine in the 1960s, you're dealing with quotas about what Jews can and cannot be at private schools. So, you know, just the image of sort of, well, it is Westchester, which is very Jewish. So I'd have to look into the history. I don't know. 1960s Westchester. It was it as Jewish then as it is today, mm. or was it the same sort? Was it more Protestant and like, no, we have quotas and Jews can't go to these private schools here. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Something fun to research. Yeah. All right. Well, who's next, Brandon? Glad you asked. We're going to jump to a, a much more recent character. We are looking at arsenic. Um Arsenic is one of the runaways who you may be familiar with listeners from the Hulu TV show Runaways, uh, or you may be familiar with the comics. Uh, They started in 2003, Runaways number one, written by the incomparable Brian K. Vaughn um, with art by Adrian Alfana. So Gertrude Yorks or Arsenic was one of the original characters. This is a group of teenagers who discover that their parents are all supervillains. And so they run away, but not before either discovering they have superpowers or uh, taking technology that gives them superpowers. Uh, Gertrude, or Gert, uh, Arsenic, happens to have a psychic bond with a Velociraptor. Um, And of course, the Velociraptor's name is Old Lace. Hence, we have the good old duo of Arsenic and Old Lace. We're once again just looking at one quick panel. Uh, This actually was in, we haven't talked about these yet, but one of my favorite days of the year, which is always in May, uh, there's a little something called Free Comic Book Day. And uh, I can't remember the year that it started, but basically one Saturday in May, there's a bunch of comics that are just released for free. It's clearly a uh, marketing campaign to get new readers into the store and get them interested in comics. But I also think it's a wonderful thing. You, I remember the very first Free Comic Book Day, there were only maybe four comics offered. And nowadays you can go in and there's probably 20-something comics that are made but in 2006 there was a uh, comic that was x-men runaways yes it was a crossover between the x-men and the runaways may 2006 written by brian k vaughn with art by scotty young um, and on the second page old lace the dinosaur is missing and gertrude is talking to chase who uh, is her on again off again boyfriend i don't know if they're dating at the time or not um but they're talking and henry why don't we read the dialogue i'm gonna be gertrude and you can be chase right i tried to raise old lace to be like me and now she really is jewish don't you get it old lace is a runaway just like the rest of us that's it it's just that little exchange it's very cute but it gives us confirmation, right? Chase said it. Gertrude York is indeed Jewish. We never really see her as far as I'm aware practice. We never see her engage with it, but it is cool to get confirmation that one of these uh, young teenage runaways is, uh, is a Yid. Is Chase making a joke or is Chase being serious? 
I think the idea is that Chase is very dense, and so he's yeah. like, oh, she's like you, she's Jewish. Like, I think that's that's Brian K. Vaughn's idea behind it. Next up, um, we have an even newer character. This is a character named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, as in test your metal, although also as in made of metal. This guy's uh, real name is Ken Mack, and he is part of the Avengers Academy. Um, now, Avengers Academy was a comic book in what Marvel branded as the heroic age, in which the hero were sort of back in charge after Norman Osborn had been running things for a while um, and the Avengers decided to run a training academy for the next generation of heroes. So Avengers Academy number one came out in 2010. It was written by Christos Gage with art by Mike McCone and one of the characters introduced is this guy Ken Mack or Metal. His body is made out of quote organic iridium. In other words, uh, it's super strong but it causes him to look red like a skeleton and very shiny. Um, and so as a result in Avengers Academy number five, which came out in October of 2010 on page 19 of the comic, uh, we just have the, uh, the young Avengers in training, hanging out with each other, chatting, exchanging banter. And you just get this one throwaway line from metal saying, can you believe these guys who think I'm the red skulls kid? The dude's a Nazi. I'm half Jewish. <laughs> and that's it. Uh, yeah. Very that's awesome. Funny kid. Great line. Also, like, had to be noted because very much he does look like the Red Skull because he's a red skeleton. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all we have. But we have confirmation that once again, we have a character who one parent is Jewish, one parent is not. We don't know. But he identifies as half Jewish and uh, takes offense to being associated with Nazis. So he's my kind of character. <laughs> that was awesome. I love that guy. Who do you want to look at next? Well, you know, most of these characters I hadn't heard of until we we're doing this, but one of them I had, and that's Walter Langkowski, a member of Alpha Flight, uh, Canada's X-Men, so to speak. And he's called Sasquatch. He's kind of like a big, furry, reddish-brown Sasquatch. He's, yeah, he literally uh, turns into a giant Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and which is like the most delightfully Canadian superhero they could have come up with. <laughs> yeah, well, especially especially when he fights a villain named Wendigo that's just like a giant white. Right. Like it's almost like fighting like a Yeti, even though it's a Wendigo, right? Like, but they basically look very much like each other. It's just one is orange and tan and the other one is white and like just like Canadian beasts going at it. Right. It's like Canadian Godzilla versus Kong is Sasquatch versus Yeti. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm, I'm very Big, Bigfoot's refereeing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, his first appearance is Uncanny X-Men 120, 1979 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. So he goes way back to that uh, iconic run that we were talking about. According to Wikipedia, he's Polish Jewish. I guess like you assume he's Polish because of the name. And I just keep thinking, where's the money, Lankowski? Yeah, <laughs> which like, honestly, it, he's in like Sasquatch is in the current Immortal Hulk run by Al Ewing and he's been a delightful character and he's kind of written as a little bit of adult to the point where I would very much read a big Lankowski parody following Sasquatch in the role of the dude. 
Yeah, I just want Bruce Banner to come in and say that in one, you know, where's the money Lankowski? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Or I guess it would be something like, where's the gamma Lankowski? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be perfect. Well, other than his name, we there's no really indication he's Jewish, except in the Infinity Crusade number one, June 1993. This is the, I believe, final sequel to the Infinity Gauntlet series, which, of course, Infin- Marvel MCU's Infinity War and Endgame is based on. Um, but the comics, it's Infinity Gauntlet, Infinity War, and then Infinity Crusade. I think I got right. that right. Yep. There's this montage of heroes sort of being called into action by seeing symbols that supposedly represent them in the sky. And it's just like a one-page montage of, of these different heroes. So Living Lightning sees a cross. Um, I guess he's Christian. That would be important to him. Black Knight sees a chalice, kind of like a, like it looks like a grail. Um, yeah. Namorita sees a trident. Hercules of Greek mythology sees a lightning bolt. Storm, our beloved Storm from X-Men, sees an Ankh because I, she's from Egypt. And then what is the Jewish symbol that Sasquatch sees? A Magain David. That's it. That's all the Judaism we get out of Sasquatch until we see him eating Chinese food with all the Jewish heroes in 2011. Right, in that holiday special that we got. Right, right. So that's our Jewish content. I mean, is it explicitly Jewish? I don't know. Yeah, well, so I'm going to go ahead and provide just a tiny bit more of context of what's going on, and then Thank we, can, you. we can dive into it. Yeah, so in Infinity Crusade, the whole story revolves around, I believe, um, an aspect of Adam Warlock's identity called the Goddess. Basically, she actually kind of looks like those gold people from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and she calls herself the Goddess and sort of has this idea that she's going to remake the world in her image is a better place by appealing to all of the most sensitive and empathic characters. And so we see a page later on where she is not only recruiting Sasquatch, but almost all of his teammates from Alpha Flight. Um, And she says to them, you are strong souls who would sacrifice your all for the collective good of humanity. So that seems to be part of the reasoning for it. Although Sasquatch was the only member to, to have a vision and again, it was of the Mach and David. And then later, when the rest of the heroes are scrambling and trying to figure out what happened to all these characters who were suddenly transported away, whisked away by the goddess to go and uh, be brainwashed for, by her, basically, um, Vision notes in, his, in the robotic way that only he can uh, that what unites all the missing heroes is, quote, an event or attitude that might be categorized as religious. We know that the intention of the story is that all of these characters uh, have a religious connection. And because we saw a cross and the grail and an ankh, clearly these are religious symbols. And so Sasquatch, Magan David was intended as the religious symbol of Judaism, thus confirming Sasquatch's Judaism. Henry, our listeners can't see it, but you are shaking your head. They might be confused about why, but like, what's got you upset? If I could pick a symbol to call to me that represents both Judaism and my relationship to Judaism, a star of David would be the last thing I would pick. I mean, I I can't even think of anything right now, first of all, because it is so against what the way I understand Judaism to have symbology represent in a literal way, 
what we believe in. And in fact, it is one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and you shall not take a graven image. And I think it's, we've talked about this kind of thing where it's just super lazy. And if you're going to boil down everyone to their religion and then boil down their religion to one symbol, you better be damn well sure that that symbol is correct. Like, I don't even have enough information to know if these other symbols are appropriate. I'm guessing that a cross is appropriate because that is that the symbol is treated differently than the way Jews treat symbols. I don't know enough about Atlantis to know if a trident is okay. Right. Or, and I, I get the feeling that that Ankh is like, come on, Storm, yes, she was in Cairo when she lost her parents, but I don't think she has like a deep, like spiritual connection to Egypt, Egyptian deities. No, in fact, she was a god. She was a goddess. Remember, they all right. when 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 Professor goes to meet her for the first time, she is being worshipped by all of them because she's controlling the freaking weather. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. I don't think she davens to anyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's say Walter, the big Lankowski, is totally not practicing Jew. Fine. I still don't buy that if he is connected to Judaism in any way that he would, that would be the thing he would see. He would see, maybe he would see the Torah. Maybe he would see candles on Friday night, a vision of um, people praying. I don't know. It just, there, maybe he would just hear, he could, he could, they could have put Hebrew letters, you know, God's name or something in the sky. I mean, just anything other than a Magen David. I don't even feel like I know enough about a Magain, the history of the Magain David that it would occur to me that this is the one symbol representing Judaism. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get into that in a second. I just want to throw out since you you had started it, right? Like, if, when it comes to Jewish symbols, right? I loved what you threw out about the candles. I'm also thinking there's a menorah. Menorah is clearly a symbol described throughout the Torah itself of constructing a menorah to make it as being a Jewish symbol. Then you also have um, the Lion of Judah, which has been, you know, it's it's probably more nationalistic as a symbol, but I've certainly seen it. Every time I go to a synagogue, like what kind of symbol do I usually see on, uh, on the Ark, right? Like it's going to be the outline of the two tablets, right? So it could have been the two tablets as sort of this representation. There's a lot of... Um, there's just right the spherote, which we saw Batwoman had a poster of, right? Like there's another symbol that I get what you're saying about like we shouldn't really have symbols. And I know Islam is similar in terms of really being sort of against the idea of any drawn iconography. Like it really should just be abstract images. Um, but I also imagine that some of our listeners might be thinking to themselves, well, I might wear a, you know, Magen David necklace, or I know about Magen David dome, which is in Israel. That's their right. version of the red cross. Like why wouldn't right. the, the star of David be an equivalent? I could, I right. could imagine some of our listeners having that experience. That's um, so, different. And I'm not sure why, but it's different to me. The like Magen David dome. No, that like wearing a Jewish star. See, like, if he wore a Jewish star, like if Kitty, who is known to wear a Magain David, saw that, then at least there's a cue that reminds you that it's something that's important to her. Like, Got it. Got it. So what you're objecting to is the idea of a character that otherwise we had no inkling of the fact that might have been Jewish, no connection to Judaism whatsoever. The star of David suddenly being like the 
super symbol of all things Jewish. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. exactly. I'm actually going to bring up why that is indeed right. Although we might have many people who think it is. So um, we're going to go to one of my favorite scholars, which if you have an appreciation for uh, esoteric Kabbalah and mysticism, you got to love the works of Gershom Sholem, who's just one of the most incredible scholars of the 20th century. Um and Gershom Shalom actually had a, a book that wasn't published until after his death. And this book was all about the history of the Magen David. Um, he's also written numerous articles about it. But I know that um, one of his books uh, in 2009 was published uh, called Magen David History of a symbol. Um, apparently that was, by the way, 60 years after he had actually written it. Um, but basically what he does in a lot of this investigation and study is he finds out that really the Star of David, the six-pointed star, the Magen David, is much more of a magical symbol than a Jewish symbol. There's lots of sort of early records of the six-pointed star and the five-pointed star being used in um, occult works or books of magic and incantations and ritual spells used by Jews, Christians, uh, anyone who was, you know, uh, pagans, anybody. It was just sort of a common symbol that was used. The earliest record of it being used and referred to as Magen David, because of course, Magen David is sort of Hebrew for the shield of David, which implies that it is a symbol associated with King David of the Bible, of the Tanakh. Um, the earliest record we have of it of the six-pointed star specifically being associated with the title Magen David is in the 14th century, right? So pretty far into the history of Judaism. Um, by Maimonides' grandson, he kind of has this, this record. Um, we know that also in 1354, there was a Jewish flag in Prague that had the Magen David on it. So it starts to become some sort of at least national symbol uh, by, by the 14th century. Um, and it's spread since then, and it's appeared in cemeteries, and it's appeared in different areas. But it didn't really actually take on like meaning. And when I say meaning, I mean that like in your kishkas fills you real deep spiritual and significant meaning until the Holocaust when Hitler and the Nazis started putting yellow stars on Jews to identify them as such in the camps. And it was as a result of that, uh, responding to that tragedy and to that horror that the yellow star or, or not the yellow star, but the star took on a lot more significance. And of course it wound up being one of the symbols placed on the flag of the state of Israel. Um, and so it, it just upped and upped the significance of this six pointed star as a spiritual symbol, but really again, before the Holocaust and arguably, you know, at the very least before the 14th century, it, it didn't have any Jewish associations. This is a fail for me. They like, they blew it here. Uh, I, I'm I'm waiting for Al Ewing to say something, about, especially because there's so much spirituality and Kabbalah in the Immortal Hulk, and we haven't seen Walter in any recent issues. But I was waiting for something, you know, but haven't seen anything yet. So I think, yeah, I mean, that comic's in weird places right now. I think yeah, <laughs> Doc Samson is possessing Walter's body right now. Something it's like that. weird. <laughs> All right, who are we talking about next? Yeah, we are talking about the one and only Billy Kaplan, a.k.a. Wiccan. Now, listeners, if you were a fan of WandaVision, um, we're going to give the slightest of spoilers if you haven't seen it. Um, so if you haven't seen it, go ahead and maybe skip by 15 seconds. Um, 
But in WandaVision, uh, Scarlet Witch and Vision have children. They have twins, Tommy and Billy. And Billy is the twin who grows up to become Wiccan. Those of you who skipped ahead, hopefully you've come back. I want to make sure you don't miss out on any of the good stuff. But we have this character named Wiccan, Billy Kaplan. His first appearance was in April 2005 in Young Avengers Number 1, which was written by Alan Heinberg and Jim Chung. Um, Alan Heinberg, what a guy. A wonderful TV writer, I believe, who has not done too much comic book work. But he came in and wrote Young Avengers, and it was just like a smash sensation from the beginning. Uh, basically took the idea of what if we... We had a younger generation in um, what had happened contextually is that the Avengers broke apart entirely in Brian Michael Bendis's run Avengers disassembled. And with the Avengers sort of gone, these young kids decided to honor their fallen heroes and take it upon themselves to be a new group of Avengers, a young Avengers. And each of them essentially emulated a classic character. So um, I don't need to get into all of them, but Wiccan was very clearly sort of a Scarlet Witch reference. Um, and of course we would later find out that Scarlet Witch was his mother. Um, so Wiccan appears, his name is Billy Kaplan. You probably, your ears perk up and you're like, Kaplan, huh? Sounds like he's probably Jewish. Um, and five years after he's created in July 2010, um, in an issue of Uncanny X-Men number 526. Now, the main issue is written by Matt Fraction. However, um, there's a backup story written by Alan Heinberg, creator of those Young Avengers, setting up for a sequel to Young Avengers, which at that point was people were waiting with bated breath for the sequel. They were so pumped and excited. Um, so at the end of this issue, Dr. Nemesis and Magneto are hanging out on Utopia, this island that the X-Men had claimed as their own. Um, and Dr. Nemesis is, you know, asking Magneto about whether or not he knows these young Avengers. And he points out Wiccan uh, and uses this description, a teenage mage who, though Jewish, calls himself Wiccan. So boom, there we have confirmation. Billy Kaplan is indeed Jewish. And right from the beginning, it's pointed out that there's this weird tension because he calls himself Wiccan and Wiccan is not just a cool name, but it actually is like a faith. It is a, a practice. And so he's like, Oh, that's a little interesting. So in Avengers, the children's crusade, number three, which came out in November, 2010, we have Wiccan being confronted by a memory wiped Scarlet, Witch. she's standing over him and asking who he is. And he can't get himself to say it out loud, but we get the captions revealing his inner thoughts as he thinks I'm, I'm, I'm the son you thought was dead, but whose soul migrated into the body of a gay Jewish fanboy who grew up on the Upper West Side. Boom. Love it. Love it. Like, love the queer representation. Love the idea that he's Jewish. And I love that he grew up on the Upper West Side. <laughs> and we, we, we're not going to bring it up, but I think there is a later issue in Kieran Golden's run where it reveals that he's the son of, like, a cardiologist. <laughs> Just like, I love <laughs> Dr. The Kaplan. Like, yeah, Dr. Kaplan. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. Um, so those are sort of two, right? Like, he's identified as Jewish by someone externally, and then he's identified as Jewish himself right um and then we don't really get much of him jewish he's in that same 2011 hanukkah special he uh, you may recall is using his powers to light the menorah um which he's lighting it backwards i think but like all right he's lighting the menorah which is a fun thing um and then the last bit of jewish content we really get from him and it's not fully jewish it's more of a self-identity or it's not really content it's a self-identity thing in new avengers volume four number three which was published in november 2015 um al ewing 
the guy we had just mentioned is the immortal Hulk writer. He was writing this new Avengers series and he has wicked, Wiccan having a conversation with another character named Power Man. And Power Man is actually challenging Wiccan on the code name by saying, is it your faith? Do you practice Wicca? And Billy responds, I'm Jewish, kind of lapsed Jewish, but... And then he goes on to try and explain why he's doing that. Now, Al Ewing's whole point here is it's weird that Billy calls himself Wiccan without practicing the faith and identifying as Jewish. Um, right. I know plenty of people who are like Jew witches who practice Wicca and identify as Jewish. That could be a cool angle to be able to see, but that's not what we get. Um, and what's frustrating to me, Henry is the fact that there's a lot of attention pointed to why is his nickname Wiccan? If he isn't a Wiccan, right. It kind of gets to this idea of like someone's religious identity is not a costume or a code name that someone can just apply. I'm behind that. That's yes. I agree with that. What frustrates me is that this conversation always centers around him not being Wiccan and it never takes it as an opportunity to explore him actually having a connection to his Judaism. The fact that he describes himself as like lapsed Jewish. I, what does that mean? What is lapsed? I've never heard that expression before in my life. That is not a thing that you would say. Yes, I know plenty of people who grow up Jewish and then are like, oh, I don't really practice. The number of times I've had people when I was on campus who would talk to me like, oh, Rabbi, I'm a bad Jew. And then I have to be like, you're not. It, like, like, you know, But I understand that people self-identify. But what the hell is a lapsed Jew? I've never heard this. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. I'm going to work backwards because I want to respond to that first. So... When I read it, I cringed. And then I thought, okay, so there's two possibilities here. All right. So at best, if he's making a joke, then it's kind of funny. Like I'm a lapsed, I'm a lapsed Jew, you know, like, ha, ha, ha. If he's not, if that's like a phrase he's saying, then again, bad on writer for not understanding that that's not a thing. Exactly what you said. No one says I'm a lapsed Jew that is specifically used. I mean, it's all you know, anecdotal and, and part of society, but like people say I'm a lapsed Catholic. They don't say it, you wouldn't right. say that you would say, Oh yeah, I don't, I'm Jewish. I don't practice. You know, right. I'm, I don't even know if you'd apply it for any other religion, but specifically Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it was, so again, best intentions, if it was a joke and since Billy's making it, then it's fine. If it was what he, the way in which he refers to himself, then that's, incorrect and not a thing okay yeah <laughs> not to further complicate things but there's a lot of chatter online about billy and billy's judaism on like where j twitter and comics twitter sort of inter mm -hmm. intersect like we have one of our friends on twitter at jewish speed katie talks a lot about billy uh, seems to be a big stand for Billy and the Young Avengers and talked a lot about this stuff during WandaVision because there's sort of this tradition at Marvel of whitewashing some characters. And there's a worry that Billy 
it seems to be we're going to get an introduction of the of the twins into the MCU a little more. There's a worry that Billy's not going to be Jewish at all. And the part where I say not to further complicate things is Wanda has Jewish roots, which yeah, has been yeah, completely yeah. wiped out in both the comics and the MCU and only in the comics to match the MCU. Her father canonically until a certain point was Magneto. So she's half Jewish. She's part, she has, you know, she has some Jewish roots in it. And a lot of her Romani uh, heritage, I think has been whitewashed away too. And so there's a fear of that stuff in the movies going for forward. And I'm still waiting for the MCU to get on board with having some Jewish content or even a character who identifies in that way. So like I said, I don't want to <laughs> further complicate things, but there's sort of this yeah. history of like not treating Jews quite well, even if it's a reference. Right. And I mean, I, I just want to, point out that there was a point in time at least before the retcon that divorced Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch from being Magneto's children there was a point in time in which Billy was the son of Wanda who is the daughter of Magneto and therefore you have Jewish lineage that way and then as he self-identifies in the children's crusade his soul migrated into the body of a gay Jewish fanboy who grew up in a Jewish home. So like Billy actually kind of identifies as Jewish and has a Jewish connection in multiple ways. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because just so people know, it's this really complicated thing. Wanda had these twins. The twin souls were sent back by the devil in Marvel named Mephisto. They were like, they turned out to be sort of like illusory and then they were stolen away. And then somehow the souls got sent backwards in time to inhabit the body of people. So that even though in Marvel time, like Wanda should have just had newborn babies, just a few years later, all of a sudden there are like full on teenagers who are, have the souls of her children comics everybody it's yeah weird. but like again he's kind of I, it's weird for me to say doubly jewish but like they're no you, again yeah he's like the child of prominent jewish characters who then canonically had his soul put into the body of another jewish character right it was like it's not like he was the the son of wanda who got like adopted by the kaplans like his soul actually went into another person. And, and I just want to say the nice thing about all this is I love that quote. I'm the son you thought was dead, but whose soul migrated to the body of a gay Jewish fanboy who grew up with that son. That's, that's such good, like inclusion and yeah, yeah. Jewish, good, positive Jewish representation. I think in general, I think of Billy positively as like a good Jewish character. It seems to be a very specific thing about him. And yes, to to us a, a little bit of a negative that like they, they don't explore his Jewishness a little more, but I think everyone sort of knows he's Jewish and wicked. How cool would it be? Cause I think uh, I, I feel how cool would it be if Billy claimed a new code name and he called himself something like Kesem, which is mm. the Hebrew word for magic, right? Mm. Like, you know, like that sounds like a, it's Kesem. Sounds like a superhero to me. I would totally buy it as this like neat, funky term. And it connects him to his Jewish roots, right? Like I, I think Billy is one of those characters where yes, representation matters. And I love the fact that he's Jewish and I get so excited because I know, wow, that's a Jewish character. Like I could imagine myself in the young Avengers and I just always want it to be a little bit more. I don't need him to be, practicing i don't need him to be the most engaged but like 
I want to see a Jewish story where his Judaism matters. I want to see him engage in it. I want to see a story where when he gets challenged on the code name of Wiccan, not only does he do some soul searching about like, maybe I shouldn't call myself that, but I want to see him do some soul searching about like, well, I do have a faith background. I do have this spiritual side. Like, what if I explored that a little bit more? And maybe he decides like, eh, it doesn't fully work for me. That's like fine. But like, give me that story where he's engaging with his Judaism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a chance we'll see it at some point. I mean, I think he we're going to see the character a lot more in the comics as, you know, we start to see him yeah. possibly in the MCU. So maybe. And last last shout out I just want to give is a, a thank to the WordPress blog, um, Geeky Captain Writes, um, because when we were prepping for this, I found a blog um, from August 24th, 2020, um, highlighting a lot of the points that we described, highlighting a lot of this frustration with Billy, um, and just know that uh, if you're somehow listening to this, uh, you got two people that are sort of on your side and in agreement with you. We are talking about a guy known as Doc Samson or Leonard Samson. This is another older character. His first appearance was Incredible Hulk number 141, published in July 1971. Doc Samson is a psychologist who uh, exposed himself to gamma radiation, the same type of radiation that turned Bruce Banner into the Hulk. Um, And what it did was it turned his hair green, made him really big and really strong. And so we're going to look at a few issues. Uh, I think Doc Sampson is probably, out of all the characters we're covering today, the character who has um, the largest volume of Jewish content. Yeah, definitely the most coverage here. We're first looking at Incredible Hulk, number 143, September 1971. It's uh, it's actually called, the story's called Sanctuary. Oh Lord, prepare mm-hmm. me. Written by Roy Thomas and penciled by Dick Ayers. So on page six, he's describing his powers or his his origin. He's on, on page six, he's describing his origin. He says, I learned that in some uncanny way, just like the original Samson, my raw power varied directly with the length of this green hair the gamma rays gave me. And then later he says, in point of fact, I found it increasingly hard to control my strength till I took scissors in hand and played my own Delilah, which is so funny, like... I love that he has to cut his hair to pull back his powers, which is such a cool concept. I know. Like, Like, how did we never know that about him? They never brought that back. Like, you know, that if he just let his hair grow, he'd be like, would he be as strong as the Hulk? I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, what a, like, what a fun concept. The idea that the longer his hair grows, the more powerful he is. And like, I mean, Henry, what it's making me think about is, you know, any scene in a superhero movie when a character first gets super strength and they wake up and they're unsure of it and then they go to like turn on the sink and they end up breaking the faucet and it like, you know, they they shatter a piece of faucet and they, they you know, they, they just like they open a door and the entire door comes off the hinges right, and it's like right. too strong. So I love the idea that Doc Samson is like at that level where like he can't open the fridge without breaking the thing. <laughs> and so he's like, let me cut a little bit. All right, cool. I can still fight in a battle, but now I can get a sandwich like yeah. everything's okay and it's cool like his name is clearly a reference to biblical samson and he's referencing delilah specifically playing his his own uh delilah here yeah so let's make sure that everybody's up to up to speed on uh on this uh you know this is in some ways this is a general bible reference meaning Christian audiences would get it and it could just be a general Bible story. But in other ways, 
This is a story that appears in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the 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 one that we Jews find holy. And so, like it is, I'm going to count it as Jewish content, given it's a Jewish character explaining why they are uh, connected to Samson. So, who is Samson? He is the last of the judges of Israel, and he is a Nazarite who has incredible strength. Well, a Nazarite or a Nazir um, is someone who takes a particular vow, the vow of the Nazarite, which is described in number six. Um, the vow involves abstaining from wine and all grape product. Um, but also in number six, five, we get the description that Kol Neder Nidro, all the days of, of this vow, Ta'ar Lo Ya'avor Al Rosha, no razor shall possibly pass over his head. Ad Malot Asher Yazir Lashem. Until the completion of the days that he's sworn off. So basically a Nazarite vow is I, I make a vow not to... T- intake any great products and not to cut my hair at all for a certain length of time, right? So it might be a period of months, it might be a period of years, and then you don't cut your hair at all until after the Nazarite vow has come to completion. And so Samson, in particular in the Tanakh, Samson took a Nazarite vow that gave him incredible strength and he could defeat everyone until in judges 16 he met this woman named delilah uh who he loved because samson loved a lot of women and uh (laughs) loved uh, is a very generous term uh samson uh enjoyed being intimate (laughs) with a lot of women and uh the philistines who are sort of uh, constantly the enemy of the the israelites and the jewish people at this time the philistines um pay delilah to betray samson and she gets him to reveal in judges 16 um his weakness to her it's actually a lot of cute episodes where basically uh he keeps being like this is my weakness and then she'll set up an encounter that takes advantage of it and he's fine and it doesn't turn out and then she goes why did you lie to me and somehow samson isn't like wait a minute every time i tell you my weakness i get attacked on that very spot like clearly you're betraying me instead he's just like oh you fine i won't lie and he tells her the truth and um she uh woos him to her and has him fall asleep in her lap, invites a servant to come and they cut his hair and he loses his prodigious strength. Um, and then some Philistines come and gouge his eyes out uh, and things are pretty rough for Samson. Yeah, but it has an epic ending where he, where he gets his strength back one more time by praying to God and growing his hair and pulls down the temple and destroys everyone. Yeah, great epic story with a tragic ending. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, like Samson in some ways, uh, one of the original Jewish superheroes. Doc Samson, though, has another appearance in Incredible Hulk 373 by uh, our friend Peter David, who we've mentioned several times during the, that uh, 90s run that we've talked about. And on page 12 of this particular issue, he's involved with some uh, military guys. And this one guy, Colonel O'Connor, is in an argument with a nun. And Doc Sampson is kind of messing with him and it says, intimidated by nuns, eh? Common phobia for Catholic school grads. Now me, I attended yeshiva. I'm fine unless a very strict rabbi shows up. So good. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it was like, it's so good as a Peter David Jewish dad joke. And yes. it's just good. Yeah, like I think I think Peter David, especially in retrospect, a lot of people look back at his punny humor and it it feels very dated, very like sometimes even a little gross. Like it's just like there's a I loved him at the time and going back, sometimes Peter David books don't 
don't live up to expectations sometimes. And yet this is a line where I'm just like, no, it's just so good. The idea, like the fact that he's a psychologist. And so of course he's making this armchair analysis of the guy, the, the like playing with like, Oh, you're afraid of strict nuns because of this like child experience. And then like, that's, you can just imagine the smirk he says is like, I'm fine. Unless a very strict rabbi shows up. <laughs> um, so good. Yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, now, Henry, I mean, one thing that comes up that feels a little weird is, um, you know, he says he attended a yeshiva and, you know, he compares it to Catholic school. It's just, it's curious to me because I don't usually think of yeshiva. I guess it could be high school, but I'm more thinking of like the Jewish version of Catholic school would be like cheder, going to sort of like a Jewish school where like when you're younger, class is usually called cheder. I guess in high school it might be yeshiva, but I also feel like rabbinical studies afterwards as yeshiva so like i'm i'm left here just based on this panel uncertain as to just how deep doc samson's learning in judaism is yeah i mean i went to yeshiva high school orthodox jewish high school and it colloquially is often called a yeshiva high school it's not yeshiva that's a different thing but i think like um qualifying it with that with yeshiva high school sure maybe he went there he, yeah, if he if he's talking about being young and intimidated by rabbis as a kid, then he's talking about cheder or just Jewish day school or Hebrew school, maybe. I mean, unless at his yeshiva where he was studying to be a rabbi, maybe, or maybe he was doing right. a gap year after high school and in yeshiva, who knows? He could have been intimidated by his rabbis. That certainly is a real thing, but it... Uh, Yeshiva is a very specific thing in the way that he's saying it, and it doesn't seem like it totally fits. So I think Peter David kind of just threw that in there and didn't fully right, understand right. what he was saying. But if you look and, you know, if you Google and look for Jewish superheroes, you will inevitably find the pages in which people point out Doc Samson as a Jewish character. And there's always that sort of point. In fact, he went to Yeshiva. It's yeah. always like written as this, like, what a cool gem of a fact. And yeah. this next story is really going to heighten why Henry and I are spending so much time being like, but what kind of Yeshiva did he go to? Um, so you know, the book that we just went through was in, in September 1990. Now we're in um, Marvel Holiday Special 1992, uh, which has a publication date of January 1993. Um, that's not confusing. You know, it happens. It happens. I, I, I'm i hoping it's like that's the date written on the book, but it actually was on the stands in time for December. But who knows? It's one of these Marvel Holiday Specials. We've been through one before. Um, and you've heard Henry and I have our rants on the fact that it's usually, uh, you know, five to a dozen Christmas stories and then maybe one Hanukkah story that just tends to be in there. Um, this happens to be one of those where this, this is the the lone Hanukkah story. And, you know, it's one I have mixed feelings on. I The first time I read it, uh, I, I kind of hated it and thought it was a missed opportunity. And the more I spent time with it, the more I found things I like. We'll, <laughs> we'll dive into it. So this story is called Revisionist History. It is written by Peter David penciled by John Herbert, who uh, I don't actually know much about him at all, inked by Mike DiCarlo, colored by Glynis Oliver, lettered by Brady Joyce, and edited by Renee Witterstater. Um, so in page page one, Doc Samson is back visiting his old yeshiva. Um, and we get a woman named Mrs. Klein introducing Doc Samson to tell the story of Hanukkah to her class. And she says she was actually his teacher when he was a boy. So like 
this is what Peter David was talking about. She's not, I don't think she's the rabbi, but like, this is the school Peter David was referencing. Um, and what's amazing is like, Doc Sampson is wearing a yarmulke while he's here. And in fact, all the children are wearing yarmulkes, uh, all the boys in this class. It would be too much to expect in 1992, a sort of egalitarian version where like men and like the the, the boys and the girls are all wearing kipotes, but you've got the, the boys wearing yarmulkes. Um, and then there's this note, this editor's note that says that this story is, quote, based on an incident from his Hebrew school days, meaning Peter David's. And that puts a lot of this into context because the story we're about to get through there's just no way it would happen at a, at an actual at a Jewish day school or a yeshiva. It doesn't make sense. It makes more sense for a once or twice a week Hebrew school like Peter David went to, but it's very strange. Let's show you why. Page two, the kids are asking all these annoying questions, delaying Doc Samson from getting into the story. And Mrs. Klein identifies them by saying, these Olive classes can get a little rowdy sometimes. Love it. I love the fact that he remembered that like the first grade of students, not like first grade, but like the youngest class of students are usually called Kita Aleph or like class Aleph. And then you're going to get Kita Bet and Kita Gimel and you'll go on through the 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 Aleph Bet. It's, it's just really neat to see that. So on page three, uh, Doc Sampson starts talking about the Maccabees, describing them as a group of Jews in Judea. Uh, the students argue back that if they're soldiers, they must have had guns because soldiers have guns. There's that Peter David humor coming through. And Doc Sampson actually agrees and says, yeah, yeah, sure, they had guns. Mrs. Klein is shocked because, of course, in, you know, <laughs> um, in second century BCE, uh, there were no guns. But Sampson says to her, look. I just want to get through the story once, Mrs. Klein. Okay. I love the implication that this is not the first time. Like either what he means is that he comes back every year and every year it doesn't happen. Or it means that he's been there all day talking about Hanukkah with every class that she's taught. And it's just this one in particular is like rowdier than the rest. And he's determined. He's like, I got interrupted every other time. I'm telling it this time. I, either way, I love the idea. Um, and then a young girl asks, why don't we have a Santa Claus? And that's, that's the like, that's the joke that I get the like womp womp Peter David humor. And maybe that's based on, but like, it's starting to feel like he's writing for a Christian audience way more than for a Jewish one. And I cannot imagine a Jewish day school or cheder or yeshiva where a kid would possibly be asking that. Yeah. I mean, unless they're being a wise ass, you know, like right. they know the answer and that may, may very well be right. Like he says, I just want to get through this once, but what you said about, I'm starting to feel like he's writing for a Christian audience. I actually think that that's what's happening in most of these um, Hanukkah stories in the, in, uh, in these holiday specials and that they're not doing it as like a, um, you know, the like our Jewish fans might really appreciate this. I mean, maybe they right. think they are, but they actually are writing it to like, it seems like they're writing it more to check off some sort of inclusion box. And, right, right. And it's just for the masses. It's not actually for that Jewish kid who, who right. might actually care reading because it. Because so every, every single one of them just goes back to retelling the story of Hanukkah as though they expect the readers to not know what it is. But like, 
I've never seen a holiday special where there's a story that's like, let's tell the story of Christmas because you might not know it. It's like, it's an assumption. It's a given that this story is known. And so, yeah, like what I would give to have, I mean, I guess we saw it in 52, right? Greg Rocker runs, wrote some scenes like this, but like, just give me a, give me a Hanukkah themed story that doesn't have to retell the story of the holiday, but can just be during Hanukkah. Right. And, 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 you know, and the other thing you said was that like, how do these students not know the story of Hanukkah? Yeah. Like, yeah. My, like my three-year-old know already knew Hanukkah, the story of Hanukkah, this, this yeah. past Hanukkah. Even if they're at a once or twice a week Hebrew school, I feel like they already know the story of Hanukkah before this. And right, like all the more so if they're at like a full on Jewish day school page four, as he continues to tell the story. And this is where it gets creative and funky because he basically is going to start casting Marvel characters as all of the prominent figures. Um, he casts Ultron as Antiochus the fourth. This is actually my favorite joke in the entire thing, Henry, because uh, what people may not realize is that the first time Ultron appeared, he was Ultron. And in the next Ultron appearance, he was Ultron 2 and Ultron 3. And basically every time you get another Ultron, he he's the next addition. He's the next model, the next upgrade. So he has another number. So the fact that it was Antiochus the fourth, so it must be Ultron the fourth. Like, it's just so good. That was a good little Marvel inside joke there. Yeah, uh, that was good. So good. Um we then get in in the story because at this point Doc Samson is just being an improviser and yes anding anything the kids say. Um, Judea becomes Krypton, which also a cool implication that like ancient Judea becomes the planet Krypton. And when you think to you know Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster creating Superman and these like two Jewish kids in Cleveland creating this character, and you know you and I, Henry, are are constantly talking about our frustration with. Jewish takes on comics that is like, haven't you noticed how Superman leaving Krypton is sort of like Moses in the basket going down the Nile? Like, yeah, fine. But to then take a Jewish story and make it Krypton, that's a cool element of Judaism and comic books coming together. Um, Very cool. On page, on page five, we now see that the Maccabees are Captain America, Wolverine, and the Hulk. What an army. Judah Maccabee, eat your heart out. Um, uh, one of the kid asks if this is the part with Goliath that's in you know, the giant um, Samson says yes. And so then we see an image of captain America throwing his shield at the forehead of this giant man named Goliath. Um, and the Goliath we see is not Hank Pym, who you may know from the movies as Ant-Man who eventually becomes giant man, but rather the supervillain Eric Jostin who went by the identity Goliath for quite a while and eventually would join the Thunderbolts as a character named Atlas. Um, and fun fact, one of his Thunderbolt teammates is songbird who's also identified as Jewish, although we can't find any actual panels that label her as so. Then uh, the kid, you know, uh, another kid mentions, like, I thought it was David with the rock. Of course, that's what it is. It's the biblical story from 1 Samuel 17, David slaying Goliath with a sling and a rock. Um, but I love Captain America as David and Goliath as Goliath. Page six, Samson, Doc Samson says that the temple is full of idols. And so we get it depicted as, pictures of Elvis Presley. Once again, there's that uh, Peter David humor. And then we get to sort of the, the climax of the story at which Wolverine, Cap, and Hulk are standing reverently in front of a desk lamp in need of oil. The desk lamp is WD-40 and in the next panel, it's been replaced and now it's like more of a genie lamp. And I just, that's one of the moments where it's a real lost opportunity because I get that he's going for the humor and making as many jokes as he can, but like 
how powerful would this panel be, Henry, if you saw Wolverine, Captain America, and the Hulk reverently gathered around an actual menorah? Missed opportunity. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Yeah, because you could like market that and then sell that at Hanukkah time, that image, you know? Like, totally. Uh, <laughs> I'd buy a t-shirt with that image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd buy a dozen of them. Yeah. On page seven, one of the other smarmy kids mentions that uh, he thinks the real reason that the oil burned and lasted for eight days was the human torch. Great. Love bringing in the Marvel characters. Then he says, I think the human torch was the burning bush also. And then on page eight, we get to the the disappoint the most disappointing part which is um the same girl who asked why we don't have a santa claus earlier presses on and again says why don't we have a sant why don't we have santa and samson says it's because antiochus the fourth ultron crushed him with an anvil and we see an image of the imag imagination of that happening and then you see the entire class of kids start crying and that's where i get very very upset i understand the idea one he said it's based on a true story. So I'm sure something like this happened. But the idea of a bunch of Jewish kids at yeshiva having to be told the Hanukkah level this basic and then crying at the realization that like an imaginary version of Santa Claus was killed. It just, I always knew there was no Santa. Like it was never, I remember having conversations with my parents where it's like, Santa Claus isn't real, right? Like, but don't tell your Christian friends, right? Like everyone I know who grew up with Christian friends, like I've seen lots of Twitter conversations with people are like, I remember my parents stressing to me, don't say it because you don't want to like hurt or upset these other people. So the idea that these Jewish kids would be so upset, it just... Yeah, like why, why would the kids at yeshiva... <laughs> Again, if we're led to believe, if we're supposed to be in a yeshiva, then why why would these kids care about Santa Claus? They would think that was funny. Like, right, if a superhero right. came into my class at Jewish day school when I was in first grade and said that an anvil fell on Santa, I would laugh. That would be funny. Right. <laughs> right. Like, if the characters are just being wise asses, like you said, and they're just messing around, like, why don't we have Santa Claus? Right then they're not going to be crying at the thought of Santa being crushed by an anvil. It's only if the question's genuine that you get to them crying. And that's the part where it just like, it falls apart and it doesn't work. And Mrs. Klein kicks Doc Samson out. Uh, Doc Samson, as he goes, says, you know, does this mean you don't want me to come back and tell them about Passover? Cute little nod to another holiday. Can't even imagine the version of the story he would tell. And uh, Mrs. Klein says, I said go. And I suppose it's reading into it too much to hope that that's somehow a veiled let my people go reference. Well, Henry, we've done six characters and I told you we're going to do seven. And I knew that Doc Samson would kind of end on a bit of a bummer note. So I wanted us to end with the my favorite of the characters that we're going to be covering. And when I say favorite, I don't even know if I mean as a character, but I mean in doing this podcast and this research and discovering the Jewish, the Judaism of characters, one of the coolest characters we've ever encountered. We are going to be looking at a guy named Kevin Casper Cole, who goes by the code name White Tiger nowadays, but once upon a time was actually Black Panther. His first appearance is in Black Panther Volume 3, number 50, published in 2002. 
It was written by Christopher Priest with art by Dan Fraga, so created by those two. And this is in the middle of like Christopher Priest's iconic Black Panther run that really helped raise the character back to new prominence in, I think, like the late 90s, the tail end of the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like this really rose the character's prominence up. Of course, Ta-Nehisi Coates would go on to write him in more recent years, and that got a lot of eyes on Black Panther. Again, the movie obviously brought him up, but like really Christopher Priest wrote one of the more definitive you know, recent-ish, modern-ish stories um, have this epic run. And in number 50, uh, T'Challa is not able to be Black Panther for a brief period of time. And instead, we get this guy, Kevin Casper Cole. Now, uh, this man, Kevin Cole, is he has a Black father and a white Jewish mother. And so he's mixed race, light-skinned, and he actually has the nickname Casper because of his light skin. He's engaged to Gwen, who's a Korean woman, and he ends up finding a bulletproof Black Panther vest, which he uses to dress up as Black Panther in order to investigate corruption in his police department. Um, And as I said, he later becomes the hero White Tiger. But just to let it sink in, there is a biracial, half-Jewish character out there who briefly wore the mantle of Black Panther. We're going to be looking at uh, basically this is actually the conclusion of the the Kevin Cole arc is Black Panther. Black Panther Volume 3 number 56. It was published in May 2003, just six or seven months after the character debuted. Stories called Black and White Part 6 Old Boy Enters the Life. Uh, it's written by Christopher Priest with pencils now by Jim Calafiore. Inked by Mark McKenna. Colored by Jennifer Schellinger. Lettered by Paul Tutrone and edited by Mike Martz. And we've just got a few panels, but on pages three and four, um, as Casper's sort of exasperated in his investigation, he's sitting in a police car and notices a silhouette walk by that turns out to be his mother. Um, and when they recognize each other, she basically starts yelling at him and she's giving him a hard time about startling her, right? Like, how? what are you doing just waiting in the car out here? How, how could you? And then also on the other window, uh, his fiance, the, the, the woman who's pregnant with his child, Gwen, is also there. And she's upset with him because apparently he hasn't been around lately. And she's like, did you forget who I was? Did you forget the woman who's pregnant with your child? Um, and so, Henry, let's go ahead and, and to, to mimic the effects, basically... Casper's surrounded by word bubbles from either side of him as Ruth and Gwen are going back and forth. Uh, let's let's read from page four. And where's your uniform? Oh, you look like a thug. You should be in the back seat in handcuffs. Where you been, Casper? Don't you like your family anymore? And then Casper's narration in his head reads, gotta look up what the Torah says about suicide. As much as just by... by by privilege of being in the year 2021, looking back at this comic, it might be like, whoa, what a dark joke. I can't believe they said it. I also just, I don't want us to pass over that. Like he says, we got to look up what the Taurus says, right? Like this indicates that this is somebody for whom, right? Like we started with Iceman who identified having a Jewish mother and a Catholic father. And we have no indication whatsoever of Judaism, meaning anything to him. And now we are ending with a character who has, one Jewish parent, one parent who's not Jewish and cares about his Judaism enough that he's like, I'm going to look it up in the Torah, not in the Bible, not in the, right? Like, I love it. I just, I need to underline that point as we go into answer, as you said, what does the Torah say about suicide? So uh, as it turns out, Henry, um, in some ways, not much because there's no direct mention in the Torah of suicide, though there is indeed a lot of emphasis on life. Um 
people being created in the image of God, obviously. And in Leviticus 18.5, we have uh, the famous verse letting us know that a person should keep God's commandments and live by them, which the rabbis will go on to interpret to mean, yeah, follow them in a way that you can keep living, live by them, not die by them. You shouldn't follow Judaism to the point where it puts your life in danger, right? So we certainly have that uh, general sense of life mattering. And therefore, uh, uh, you know, I would describe the Torah um, as being on the side of life and living. In the Tanakh, we do have an event that seems to be a suicidal one. In 1 Samuel 31, uh, as the Philistine army is overtaking Saul's kingdom, um, Saul asks a soldier to kill him, and the soldier refuses. And so, Vayikach Shaul et Acherev, Shaul takes a sword, Vayipolaleha, and falls on it. In other words, he stabs himself. He lets himself fall on the sword, which, Henry, when we were talking about this, you were pointing out that, like, if you've ever heard the expression fall on the sword, um, that's where it comes from. It comes from the Tanakh. It comes from 1 Samuel 31. Um, and this becomes the first example for the rabbis of an anus, uh, one who is under compulsion, meaning somebody who, when they take their life, um, they're not fully responsible because they're not considered to be thinking fully freely. They're under compulsion as opposed to somebody who willingly takes their own life, who does so with full knowledge and full awareness. So Judaism um, sort of oral law uh, does seem to distinguish. So what does the Torah expansively have to say about suicide? We find some of our earliest matter and collections um, in the minor tractates of the Talmud. What are the minor tractates? They're basically um, uh, compilations of Jewish thought and ideas and rulings written in the style of the Mishnah or the Talmud, um, but specifically about topics that are not actually covered by the Mishnah or the Talmud. So, for example, there's a minor tractate uh, called Masechet Smachot. Smachot literally means happy occasions, but it is a euphemistic title because it is very much about the most tragic of occasions. Um, and in Smachot 2.2, we basically get the idea that if someone commits suicide, you don't engage in Full funeral rights for this person. Gives some specifics and it makes the general statement, the general rule is that basically anything that makes for respect of the living, we engage in. We follow that, that aspect of the of, of burial and mourning. But anything that does not make for respect of the living, the public do not in any way occupy themselves. I kind of take this to be the elements of mourning that are for comforting the mourners we do and the elements that are for honoring the dead we don't do because they i i guess because they haven't fully honored themselves and what the shulchan orech is going to go on to do and your idea simon 345 is it's going to argue that both minors and the elderly if they commit suicide are considered anusim they're considered under compulsion meaning that they receive full burial rights the the rabbis and jewish law not bends over backwards, but it stretches as far as it can to classify as many suicides as possible as anusim, as something that is someone's under compulsion because they ultimately don't want to deny people burial rights, right? Like what a cruel and horrible thing to do, um, right? The, 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 the perspective seems to be, for the most part, provide it where possible. Um, but ultimately, right, like based on all of this, it seems pretty clear that Judaism and Torah expansively um, seems to be pretty anti-suicide. On page 21, switching from that into 
much something much more hopeful, something much more exciting and sweet. Um, having, you know, coming to the end of his six part story, uh, united with with Gwen, Casper and Gwen are kind of lying in bed. Casper's head is against her belly, so you can imagine that he's hearing uh, maybe the kicks or the heartbeat of his child to be. Um, and we get this lovely last little conversation. Which Henry, you wanna you wanna read it? You'll be Gwen. I'll be Casper. This poor kid, half Korean, quarter black, quarter Jewish. The good quarter will serve bulgogi and ribs at his bar mitzvah. That's so good. Yum. I lo- delicious. I would love to go to a bar mitzvah that serves bulgogi and ribs. <laughs> you like Korean barbecue. So good. So, <laughs> But also like, gosh, talk about representation, right? The yeah. implication that he's going to have a kid who is um, Korean, black, and Jewish. Like, awesome. I hope that kid becomes a superhero. It's great. Uh, that, what a nice way to wrap up all of the people we've covered like this fully formed representation of i you know i i hope we get i i i've never heard i had never heard of that character before but i i wish you know i know i say this every week every every episode i wish there was more yeah, always, always wish that there was more Jewish content. So just looking back and reviewing for everyone, we've covered Iceman, Arsenic, Metal, Sasquatch, Doc Samson, Wiccan, and Casper Cole, White Tiger. Seven Marvel characters, all of whom are Jewish or have Jewish parentage. Uh, ranging from just a panel and a brief mention to some deep stories and some funny jokes. I don't know, Henry, what do you think? Considering the seven of them, do you have a favorite? Do you have one that stands out the most? I think my favorite, because it was the most consistent, was White Tiger, and that there's nothing in that that pissed me off. All of the other ones had at least one thing that annoyed me or disappointed me, with the exception of like, metal and arsenic arsenic but yeah, i just yeah. there's not enough that, but even the bobby thing because it's like why am i just learning about this now where has bobby drake been in terms of jewish representation for the past past 50 years but so i, I would go with white tiger because it's like great torah question <laughs> even if it was an off-color joke and really nice hope and wish for the future of uh of this kid's bar mitzvah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, despite the, the the dark subject matter, there is like a real sweetness to Casper Cole. And it's just such a, I don't want to say unique take, but like the reality is, I don't know if I've seen any other Jews of color in comic books, right? Like, I think this may be the first, right? Like we loved learning about Batwoman in part because of that intersection of queer identity and Jewish identity. And it's really cool to also see um, a Jew of color who's a superhero and who is at ease with their Jewish identity. He's white tiger. Not only, you know, I want, I always want more. I'd love to see more from him and more from his Judaism, but at least in that initial run by Christopher priest, like he just has such an ease with it. The jokes that he makes the, the, like, especially that Bulgogi and ribs one, right? Like it's, I know it's only one line and it might feel like Henry and I are making mountains over molehills, but it just represents a sort of comfort with, uh, with his identity that just like, I don't know, it brings a smile to my face. And I think at a time 
when the place of Jews of color in American Jewish society is very much a conversation by which I don't mean like, do they have a place, but rather the up, like, I think a lot of Jewish institutions are having a reckoning and a conversation about the ways in which we haven't always been welcome to Jews of color to in ways in which we, we maybe are not as inclusive a space as we would like to be. And so the idea, the fact that we have this representation, it just kind of like excites me to, to be able to just challenge the notion of anyone who's Jewish looking one particular way or being one particular way. As much as I'm frustrated by that Iceman thing that it didn't have follow up, again, the idea that we have people who struggle and we have a comic book, you know, showing someone struggling with what it meant to grow up Jewish and something else and feeling torn between those two aspects. The fact that we have a character who is black and Jewish, like it just, the more representation of different types of Judaism we get in comics, the better it is because as has been our thesis all along. And as we, as we've learned every time, the more representation there is, the less pressure there is on any one of these characters to have to represent everybody. Absolutely. Well, who's going to represent us next time, Brandon? Great question. Next time we are returning to the world of DC um, and we are going to explore a guy by the name of Adam Smasher or Nuclon. He goes back and forth between the code names. That's great. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Henry Bernstein. I'm Brandon Bernstein. No, no relation. relation. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Jewish Comics Pod. Or you can email us at jewishcomicspodcast at gmail.com.